Napa know-how. A Napa guy knows more isn't always better. Unless we're talking about full-size vans. These beasts do more than get you from A to B. They have so much space a man can live in it. With shag carpeting, waterbed, and a sweet lava lamp, these mobile abodes have all the comforts of home. With quality parts and plenty of Napa know-how, you can keep the original tiny house running longer, stronger. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is Johnny Tan, author of From My Mama's Kitchen, Food for the Soul, Recipes for Living. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio Show. My guest for this morning is Dr. Barbara Jeffy. She is an award-winning English professor at El Camino College in California and is a fellow in UCLA's Department of Education. Barbara helps students find their own unique writers' voices as well as helping other instructors in their teaching of writing through her national workshops. Barbara's passion also includes teaching about the Holocaust. She was a recipient of a scholarship to the Center of Advanced Holocaust Studies to study at Washington, D.C.'s Holocaust Museum. Barbara is here to talk about her book, When Will I Be Good Enough? A Replacement Child's Journey to Healing. She and I will be having a conversation about her life's journey through her unique perspective as a replacement child. Good morning, Barbara. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. How are you doing this morning? Wonderful. Thank you, Johnny. Thank you so much for having me on uh, your show. I look forward to our conversation. Fantastic. It is a pleasure to have you on the air with me. When Will I Be Good Enough is a very interesting read. Congratulations to its release. Until I had the chance to read the book. I did not even realize the concept of the replacement child syndrome. And so that's very, very interesting. As an adopted child myself, I could certainly relate to lots of the content that you present in the book. Truly wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Let us start by getting to know you a little bit better. Please give us a quick walkthrough of your life from childhood to the present moment. Okay, well, I was born and raised in San Francisco. I currently live in Los Angeles. Um, I'm fourth-generation San Franciscan, and um, my, the first time I left home was to go to college at UCLA. Came down to Los Angeles and actually never moved back home. Created a life here. Um, I've been married for 41 years to the same man, wonderful man, have three children and two grandchildren. And during this journey, it's really been a journey of introspection, and the various roles that I've had over the course of these many years has enabled me to search inward and to really look for some answers that I have needed to make myself complete and whole. So um, I'm one of those people who feel that the journey is more important than the destination. So... Um, Within the framework of raising my family, I've created a profession for myself, helping students find their own writer's voice. Just recently, though, I retired um, from my full-time teaching position. I'm still working at UCLA, and I'm focusing more on spending time with my grandchildren, on writing, and reading the stacks of books that I've looked (laughs) at and salivated over but never had time for. (laughs) Wonderful. It's always more fun being 
grandparents than being parents. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been told um, I can spend 100% of my focus looking at them and just amazed. And whereas parents were, were multitasking and doing so many things and the responsibility of raising good moral souls. So there's a, there's a lot of differences, you know, the, the pressure is mm-hmm. off just so mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. Well, the most important thing is that you can send them home at the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Let your parents deal with that. Like, <laughs> I can be a rock what? star in their eyes. That's great. That's right. There you go. There you go. Why did you pursue the mastery of English language as a career? Well, it is kind of interesting and ironic. I was never an English major. Um, I had some negative experiences with English teachers, which just made it, made it all the better when I became one, because I understood that there were many students sitting in my class who felt the same way. My first choice actually would have been a career in medicine. I loved anything to do with um, um, physiology, biology, um, but math was really an obstacle for me. And I grew up in the 60s where in my family of origin, um, women um, weren't encouraged to work or even go to school. And um, since I wasn't great at math, I was really kind of steered um, away from that field that wouldn't be good from my mother's perspective to be have a career in medicine and also a family. Mm-hmm. Um, going to college, what I loved the most was studying languages. And so I actually chose, I looked through the catalog at the university and chose the only major that required no math, and that was linguistics. Mm-hmm. I had to study five languages, but I did not have to study math, and I was fine with that. I've always been fascinated with languages, the word choice, putting words together, like stringing them together like pearls is just such a gift and such a joy for me. So um, I loved the mechanics of the language, and that is really what I pursued. I started my career in English as a second language and loved mm-hmm. teaching students um, whose native language wasn't English, and that kind of morphed into teaching traditional you know, classes with all native English speakers, but by then it was a mixture, which I loved, and that's really how I ended up teaching English and always felt... Um, very comfortable with students who were developing their own writing skills and writer's voice and were very tentative because I could totally relate. Very, very interesting. You know, coming from a background as English is my second language, it's a little bit intimidating to have you on the air with me to talk about English. And then when I run into someone that has a master's in English and PhD in English, it's like I thought I got the ABCs when I was in high school. And, of course, in college. And it's like, really, what exactly do you guys learn? I mean, is there any other way of flipping the 26 alphabets that makes a big difference and it's really intimidating to me? <laughs> I know. Well, hopefully you won't be intimidated. I'm about the worst Scrabble player you would ever meet, um, ironically. So um, I think that you'll realize that, no, I don't judge. And as I said, uh, the love of language to me is fascinating. And I always put myself in my students' position thinking, if I had to go to another country and master a language to the point of being a talk show host or to being an author, I would, I would never feel that I could ever do that. So my hat's off to you, really. <laughs> Thank you. You're very kind. Thank you. How did writing become a hobby? 
Well, from the time I was a little girl, I loved writing. I loved anything to do with writing, pens, paper. Um, best gift I ever got was a desk. And every day after school, I'd come home and sit and I would write. So it was really part of my life force, I have to say. I kept a diary from the earliest age. So writing to me has just been really part of, of my identity from the very beginning. Very interesting. And as I... Yeah, and as I grew up, um, I would write every day. Like some people exercise, I mm -hmm. write every day. And when I don't, I'm thinking, what's wrong with me? And then I realize I'm a little off kilter because I haven't written. So even if it's 30 minutes, um, I write every day. Do you feel in the process of you doing your writing, do you actually write or do you journal? And what's the difference, by um, the way? Yes, it's a good question. Um, I think the most important thing is to get it down. I used to say to my students, it's kind of like clay. Unless it's down on paper, we can't mold it. A lot of times students are very tentative with writer's block and are worried about that. So for me, I, sometimes I'll just journal. I'll just write whatever comes into my mind, which I kind of think as free association is more of journaling. And something will pop up, some kind of frustration or some kind mm -hmm. of reflection, and then from there a piece of writing can be generated. But it's the ideas in a journal that come down um, without limiting myself, without telling myself to stop or to correct any language. I just write. Hmm. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Who are some of your favorite authors when you were growing up? Well, my favorite authors are authors that I gravitate because of their authentic voices. I've, I started when I was younger, I would always read biographies. Um, I found that nonfiction, learning about other people, was so fascinating to me. Um, I've always loved Sandra Cisneros uh, for this reason. Reading her books, it's like having a cup of co coffee with her and a conversation. Um, I've enjoyed reading books by Anne Rolfe, and she's since passed away, but she's another person whose voice just comes through the pages. And when I listen to her descriptions and her feelings and like the human condition, I just, I'm, there's such joy there. I feel that about Danny Shapiro, Deborah Feldman. I think the, but my all-time favorite book in terms of the importance would be Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, because it reminds us that more important than happiness is really the importance of meaning in our lives. And the books that I read, when I think about it, all have ways in which to communicate some sort of meaning that I can connect to. And that's the writing, the reading I've gravitated toward and the writing that I do myself. I really like Victor Frankl's book, Mansets for Meaning, because it's one of those books that truly challenges us to think within, not to lose the hope, and we create our own reality in a sense. That was a very powerful book, and I've read that years ago, and believe it or not, it was part of a management book that I had to read. Oh, how interesting, but I can see that. I think it's important in all walks of life, absolutely. Yeah, so it was a wonderful, wonderful book, and I would recommend people to pick it up. Obviously, it's a true story about the Holocaust and, and concentration camp and so forth, but it's the uniqueness of his voice in terms of looking every day. People actually die because they lose the hope. That's right. And hope exactly. is a very, very, very important thing. Yeah. 
That's right. What do you look for in a piece of prose that you work on, either by yourself or from your students? Um, Authenticity of voice. And Mm -hmm. not all writers have that skill, but that is something I tried to cultivate in my own students. So when they turn in a piece of writing, um, I don't try to change what they're saying. I try to help them structure it, perhaps, for clarity. But it's their voice. And so I look for pieces of writing that really reflect the person who is communicating. And that's actually what I do in my own writing. And mm-hmm. once in a while, I'll read a piece of my writing and actually forgot that I wrote it. And, and with humility, I'll say, well, actually, that's pretty good. Um, it made <laughs> me feel. And um, Mary Oliver, who is a poet, often will write in that way where the voice, you know it's hers. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. I think that that's the most powerful for me. What do you enjoy more, reading or writing? Wow, that's almost like asking me, which child do I like more? <laughs> you know, Impossible to answer. However, it's a great question. However, if I use the deserted island metaphor, what mm-hmm. could I live without during that period on the deserted island? I would mm-hmm. have to say that I would choose to have reading over writing um, on the deserted island, and I'd have to put my writing aside. And that's only because when I'm reading, I feel that I'm in another world. I'm engaging with the author or I'm taking a trip, whatever I'm reading, I'm totally involved in what that author and that communication. So there's more mm-hmm. than one person, myself. When I'm writing, it's so important to me, but it's a very solitary act. It brings me totally into my own head. And mm-hmm. sometimes that's not always comfortable to be in. And it's also very isolating. So if I had to choose one that Mm -hmm. I guess could sustain me for a longer time, it would be the reading. Although, you know, reading and writing go together. And as a professor, I would say, is students who write well, I would always say, do you like to read? Invariably, they'll say yes. But Mm -hmm. sometimes students don't like to read. But then I'd say, you probably just haven't found the kind of reading Because once people read something they like, they'll say, oh, I like that. Well, then just find more of it. But getting Mm -hmm. back to your question, I guess I would have to choose reading over writing, sadly. Interesting. (laughs) Interesting. Both probably get you to daydream a whole lot. Reading is, in a way, daydreaming about someone else's dream versus writing is daydreaming in your own story, so to speak. You are the actor, director, and everything else. That's right. That's right. But it's, it's more solitary and, mm-hmm. um, and a little bit more isolating. So if I had to choose one, but that's a really hard question. Good one. <laughs> Why did you choose to compose? When will I be good enough? Um, I have felt all my life that I wanted to write a book. I used to go to libraries and look at the call numbers and the spine of the book and just, oh, my goodness, dream of one day having a book on, on, uh, in the library. And so I've wanted to write a book, and I've had a lot of false starts because I didn't know what I wanted to write about, and I knew that there was a book within me. 
so again, starting to journal, um, eventually I wrote a chapter which turned out to be my first chapter. And um, I just felt I needed to. It, it was that feeling that if I didn't, I couldn't continue um, on without writing it. But I did not know how it would um, morph. I didn't know how the mm-hmm. book would end up. I only knew that I had the first 22 pages. And I had to sit down and really kind of trust the process that sometimes I would even pray to my higher power. I'd say, please show me the next indicated steps or the mm-hmm. next indicated pages. And that is how it unfolded. I felt that I needed to write my own story. I, I kind of liken it to um, taking myself apart, examining the pieces, and then putting myself back together. And when I completed it, I thought, I do believe that other people would benefit from reading this. They may not be replacement children, mm-hmm. but there are areas and themes of the book that I think everyone can connect to, and perhaps sometime in someone's life they have felt less than in some area. Of course, definitely. In your journey, it seems to me that was a process of gaining that self-confidence and the power from within to come out and basically announce to the world that this is what I've been struggling with. The process in itself, you had mentioned earlier just now, is the journey that matters. It's not the end product that counts. Yes, absolutely. That's right. And it was. I took my own journey and with all my own reflections and was absolutely amazed how much I could remember. Mm-hmm. And again, a lot of that happened just in the process of writing. It's almost magical. But, the more we write, the more we can remember. Yeah. yeah. And of course, in this case, I would think it's a process of transference for you. Yes, it is. It is. And it, it helped me in so many areas. Absolutely. What would you like for the readers to gain from reading this beautiful book? I think that with the understanding that um, we all walk with something in life, my mother used to say that, and it's true, meaning we all have challenges. But these challenges do not have to define us or limit us. And it's all, for me, about taking responsibility for our lives, as you you had mentioned earlier. And the choices we make, and despite any challenges we might have, that we can live wonderfully productive and happy lives with a lot of deep fulfillment. And I think that's what um, my hopeful message is for anyone reading my book. Very interesting. Obviously, we all have our upper and lower limits. Your book addresses that in terms of where we are at any situation in our lives. And as we grow older or we mature in this case, that would be the more appropriate word to use, then we realize that we are able to expand those perimeters. As the expansion happens, something inside grows stronger. It's sort of finding or redefining ourselves. We basically go through the process of being refined, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. It it is a process. It's kind of um, refining ourselves over and over again, allowing our authentic voice that really we were meant to have from early childhood, from birth, that um, eventually can come out. By the way, you're listening to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. Our podcasts are available on Apple's iTunes, Stitches Radio, Blueberry 
Podcasting, and TuneIn Radio. I'm Johnny Tan, your host, and my guest is Dr. Barbara Jaffe. She is the author of When Will I Be Good Enough? A Replacement Child's Journey to Healing. Barbara and I are having a conversation about her life's journey through her unique perspective as a replacement child. Barbara, were there challenges in composing the memoir? Absolutely. First, as I mentioned, I became really anxious as to where this memoir was going because I did not have an outline or trajectory of every chapter. I actually had no idea what was going to be coming next. But once I detached from the fear and the anxiety and I just allowed myself to write, the writing really flowed. And it was actually miraculous that the chapter, the next chapter, unfolded as the way that it should. So I I actually learned to trust the process, Mm -hmm. and the book was written the way it was meant to be written. But the challenges initially were I wasn't sure. I know some authors will write, they have the outline of the whole book, and they know how it was going to end. And that that wasn't my process. But this tr- really worked for me. I would think also the challenge in terms of bringing up old memories, good, bad, or ugly, I'm sure that in a way it's sort of a taxing moment for you. Yes, um, that was probably the biggest challenge because mm-hmm. when I thought, s- silly me, that um, my book was done and I was going mm-hmm. to edit it, Obviously, it wasn't done. The editing process took probably longer than the actual writing of the book. And it was during that time when I would reflect and actually read my writing over and over that um, so many of my feelings came out. And and at times, it was very painful and very hard for me. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. I knew I needed to constantly read it and edit it. And so, yes, that was a very big challenge. When did you find out you were a replacement child? Um, I probably should define replacement child just in case some of our listeners are a little unclear. Um, A replacement child is exactly what the literal meaning is a child that is born to replace another child in a family. Um, Sadly, perhaps the family had been complete with maybe two children. One of them died, as it was in my family's case, I, um, and then I was born to replace my brother. I have an older brother. He's uh, six and a half years older than I am, and then Jeffrey was the second child and the, supposedly the last child. He died a little before he was two, and then I was born um, after him. So I am the replacement child um, in the sense I was I understood at a young age probably around the age of around 10 that I was um would not have been born if Jeffrey had lived. When I found out I believe I was around 12 years old. So we're about the same age when we find out about what we mm-hmm. I guess supposed to or not supposed to find out. Yeah. Uh, for me it was by accident in the sense that I was adopted at birth. My sister, who is six years older than I am, she was adopted, I think, a few months after she was born. And on her birth certificate, it has a different name, and then it got that conversion, so to speak. Whereas for me, my very existence, I mean, it's like, supposedly, I am 
the child. I mean, I'm not adopted, so to speak. It was uh, siblings fighting back and forth, and my sister brought it up, the fact that I was adopted. And that kind of went on downhill from there, so to speak. Wow. And again, it's sibling rivalry kind of thing. You know, as a kid, you're fighting with each other, so to speak. And so you say things that sometimes it's not meant to be said. Yeah. But having said true. that, today my sister and I, we have a wonderful relationship. In your case, when you said that you found out the situation when you are about 10 or 11 or so, how does that make you feel and what transpired afterwards in terms of that moment of knowing what you know? I think initially um, I probably didn't process the feeling, but I think it imprinted in my head. And Mm -hmm. um, when my mom said that Jeffrey died, she only wanted two kids, I eventually was able to use some critical thinking skills and put those Mm -hmm. ideas together, which was I was born because Jeffrey died, and had he lived, I wouldn't have been born. And my next question was, what did I do to poor Jeffrey that, you know, he had to die, so I had to be born? And Mm -hmm. those were Mm -hmm. confusing questions. And my mother would often say, you know, I only wanted two children. So it was something that um, was not, I did never really defined myself as a replacement child growing up, but in retrospect, I think it had a huge impact in me, on me to look at photos of Jeffrey around the house. We really couldn't mm. talk about him or process it, and yet he was my legacy, and, and that, is, that was hard, I think, to... Um, understand, especially as a young child. Right, right. Very, very interesting. For me, in finding out who I am, completely shocked me. I went to sort of a a quiet mode for a few days. Uh, And the first thing that hit me was the fact that I actually have parents existing somewhere. That bothered me a whole lot more. I guess in your case, Mm you are still with your birth parents versus for me, like, yes. oh, my God, what happened here? Yeah. You know, like I'm thinking, and then, of course, my parents were thinking from a different scenario. It's like, well, we don't want to tell him because then he might run away if we try to discipline him about certain things. You get all those sort of things running in your mind, so to speak. And then I'm sure in reading your book, in terms of understanding, am I good enough? When will I be good enough? It triggers memories in me like, okay, I'm sure that there were times in my life when my parents may have thought that, well, if we have our own son, he would not have behaved that way or he would have achieved this. I don't know. That's the question that the what ifs. It never happened, but who knows? Yes, you're right. These are questions that that we have for various reasons mm-hmm. growing up and whether yeah. we're replacement children or adopted children, it, it's very interesting. And I think what, you know, you bring up a good point that communication is so important um, in our family. Very true. My mom talked a lot about what happened and so forth. And I came to the realization, I don't know, maybe I've been labeled as someone having an old soul. There were trying times in my life as a teenager and I was able to sort of gather myself and, realize the fact that in letting my mom know that I know you are my only mom, that's it, because you're the one who's taking care of me. When I'm sick, you're there. 
you make me happy, you cook for me, you basically took care of me. And to me, there's no one else. Mm-hmm. Having said that, in the back of my mind, do I wonder? Of course. But it's not a big issue anymore, I guess. You know, I came to the right. realization yeah. and sort of took ownership. And having said that, when did you take ownership? Because somewhere along the line, it triggered a different scenario for you. So when did you actually took ownership of the so-called not good enough mentality? I think, um, well, from the time I was very little, I realized my mother, who suffered from depression and and really never recovered from Jeffrey's death, not that any parent Mm -hmm. can fully recover from losing a child, right? but um, she literally um, was obviously grief-stricken and um, hysterical, and her doctor, right after Jeffrey died, her doctor came to the house and literally slapped her across the face and said, snap out of it. So how does anyone recover from that, really? So Mm -hmm. she would say to me in a very kind of sarcastic way, that was my therapy. And um, she never really um, was able to um, move on in a sense where today people have, you know, grief counseling Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. different support groups and talking about it. She could never do that. So I think my I felt my mission as a child was to make her happy and to do anything possible to make that happen. Um, and I wanted to be the perfect child. So whenever one uses the word perfect, that immediately sets up the not good enough because it's impossible yeah. to be perfect, of course. So I think mm-hmm. as a preteen, I realized um, that I needed to be perfect and in doing so, I overcompensated. I wanted to be the best daughter, the best student, mm-hmm. the best friend. And as I aged, I added marriage to, and motherhood to that and even cooking. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be the best wife. I wanted to be the best mother. And um, my idea of perfection and working hard and pleasing others were all part of that not good enough mentality when I was just fine and good enough would have been enough. I needed to find all of that out on my own, but it, it's a very hard way in which to live, that idea of perfection. It's interesting because it's a double-edged sword. In one way, yes, out of fear, you're driven from the fear side of the equation, and that fear actually made you accomplish so much in life in a way. That's true. Absolutely. <laughs> and the feeling of pleasing others, I've thought of yeah. that made me an amazing teacher. I wanted my students yeah. to like me. I wanted to yeah. give them as much as I possibly could. And yeah. so that's the positive side. But, of course, the negative side, it actually depleted me tremendously mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. made me feel like I was on a treadmill that I just couldn't get off at times. Right, right. So true. Can you walk us through the most tumultuous period in your life? I think for me, um, it was motherhood. Um, I always Mm -hmm. wanted to be a mother. Um, I loved being a mother, but having said that, um, I would second-guess myself a lot as a single person. But Mm -hmm. as a mother, I have three sons, um, and when they were little, I would often second-guess myself. But that's exceedingly hard when you've got lives depending on you. Fortunately, I have a lot of common sense, and so that was very helpful. But I was always 
very focused on the fact that I wasn't doing the right thing. I wasn't good enough as a mother. Um, I put so much stress keeping, you know, making sure that if my boys misbehaved, I felt it was reflection on me um, rather than maybe that's just what kids do at a certain age. And Mm -hmm. I was constantly so self-critical of myself as a mother. In retrospect, I could have given myself a huge break and mm-hmm. I probably would have been much more relaxed and enjoyed the whole process even more. But I was very, felt very vulnerable. Um, I, I really had no one in my life telling me, you're just great. I mean, kids aren't going to do that, <laughs> right? That's not their job. And I lacked the confidence. And in that lacking of confidence, I just put a huge amount of pressure on myself that I did not need to do. So that was a challenge for me. I think that I... I was and am a great mom, but I think mm-hmm. I pray, paid an internal price that I didn't have to pay going through that. Very interesting. You talked about the need to be validated in terms of the things that you do. And unfortunately in life, you're never an expert in your own backyard. So being a mother, <laughs> you never, <laughs> you would never ever get that sort of recognition in some ways. Of course, now things have changed. And that's a generational thing as well. Because parents goes through three different roles in their life. Basically, they don't ever give up either of the roles, but they are obviously a teacher first and then a coach and a counselor in some ways. Situations would dictate, and of course, the age of the children will dictate that as well. So being a teacher, you got to be a little bit more of a discipline, very structured and so forth. Coach, you have to have certain leeways, or you will need to create leeways in order to coach someone. And then finally, counselor is just being there and in some ways just as a reference person. So the challenge that I presume was the greatest for you when you were in the teacher's role for your kids as a mother. I I think so. Um, You know, I wanted them to make sure that they liked me and that everything Mm -hmm. was okay. And, you know, I think you're right. I think that was really a challenge. Um, And again, I think I did the best I could do as most parents. I know my mother did the best she could do. We all try to do the best we can do. Um, I, as I said, I think it was more of an internal struggle. They may not have known. I also yeah. grew up in a household where um, the focus was really on my mother and her needs and her moods. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. made a concerted effort that I would be a different kind of mother where I needed nothing, where my children right. could look at me and not have to worry about me at all. And I went to the other extreme. And I'm not saying that that was very good either because perhaps they don't see me as a three-dimensional person at this point because, you know, I limited that. You're saying that in your daily life growing up, you no longer think about yourself, you think about your mom. Whereas in the situation that you're in as a mom, you end up thinking about the kids. (laughs) Kids don't seem to be thinking about you. And uh, you as a mother created that in a sense, in a good way now, don't get me wrong. Because of your strength, you created that situation where the kids don't have to worry about you, and that was a good thing. I think you're right. Um, I mean, that's what we want. We want our children right. to be independent and thinkers right. and and to have their own lives and to soar, and I think that's exactly what all three of them are doing, and I'm very proud of them for that. Um, it took me a while to be able to do that in my own life, and, yeah. and yeah. I'm happy for them. Please share with us some of your mother's mandate and mantras. I thought that was very interesting. 
Yes, um, I have in chapter two of my book, I write about my mother's mandates or her mantras. And um, I'll speak for myself, but when I was growing up in my family of origin, I felt like, you know, whatever was going on is kind of what all families experience and Mm -hmm. what mothers Mm -hmm. say, all mothers will say. But um, when I wrote this down and then I would talk to people, they were surprised. They said, no, my mom didn't say those things. Well, a couple of them, perhaps. (laughs) Some of them are kind of, but I'll share four of them. Um, I have many more in my book. My mom said something to me that I never forgot, and it really was profound and and, and sadly limited me. Um, It's better to be in the middle of the road. And um, she she meant that in terms of intelligence. Mm -hmm. And um, her fear was that someone who is exceedingly brilliant Um, often had a lot of problems. So um, I think that was in response to the fact that I did not get into the gifted program early on in elementary school when they gave you the Mm -hmm. old-fashioned IQ tests, and I Mm -hmm. perhaps didn't quite make the mark. Today, I love the, you know, the multiple intelligences (laughs) and the, you know, but for that, for the limitation, and I think she was trying to make me feel better and to say middle of the road is okay. Well, middle of the road to me means average, it means right. C, and that um, really defined me. I felt that I wasn't intelligent, and it took mm-hmm. years for me to own the fact that perhaps I am. So that was one that she would say a lot. Um, mm-hmm. She would often say, I'm only here in case of fire, meaning mm-hmm. if she was upset about something, if she felt devalued or that we did not um, give her enough alkylate, she would say, I'm only here in case of fire. In other words, I'm superfluous. I'm not necessary um, in your lives. And I, of course, would say, Mm -hmm. no, we need you so much. I I said exactly what she um, Mm -hmm. wanted me to say, um, so that that was set up. But um, she would say that. One thing she said, which um, kind of interesting, was mothers of sons are selfish. Mm -hmm. And so she meant mothers of only sons. So I turned out Mm -hmm. to have three sons. So... Mm -hmm. Um, I remember asking her, well, what do you mean? I, and she said, mm-hmm. well, then that, that means you only focus on yourself because you don't have any girls in the house, so you're selfish. And mm-hmm. I feel that I'm the least selfish person I know. I'm pretty mm-hmm. selfless in a lot of ways to the fault. And mm-hmm. so when she said mothers of sons are selfish, I thought, wow, which made me work that much harder to have no mm-hmm. needs at all. And finally, my mother would say something that perhaps other mothers have said, but she would say it a lot. She said, I don't know what I got to deserve this. And um, it could be anything. And whenever she was upset about something, I don't know what I got to deserve this or what I did to deserve this. And, And I realized that life is just hard. There are so many obstacles and challenges that there's not necessarily a punishment but it's just what happens in life, and we have right. to learn and move on. But I think my mom often saw herself as a victim, and I think that was what she would often say that um, would make me sad for her. The flip side of what you just said was very interesting to me in terms of when mom said, for example, you're talking about, well, you only need me when there's a fire. To me, the first thing that came to mind was independence. They want their child to be independent. Of course, in this case, boys tend to be more independent than girls. So that might be something there from that perspective. 
the other side of the equation in terms of you talking about mom being more selfish, well, boys don't really take that much time. Unless you're a mama's boy, I guess. <laughs> and uh, they tend to be independent, so mom has more time to be on her own. And so is that selfishness? I don't know. I mean, I agree with what you're talking about. When you look back at this, the question I want to ask you is this, though. Do you feel that any of those mantras in looking backwards, can you find the silver lining in it? Um, I think the silver lining would be the same kind of silver lining that as a perfectionist made me or a people pleaser mm-hmm. made me an amazing teacher. Um, right. Be, it's better to be in the middle of the road made me work to my potential, beyond my potential, so to speak. Yeah. Um, I'm only yeah. here in case of fire. I know my mother did not really want me to be an independent. I became, yeah. tried to be on a quest to be fiercely independent um, yeah. Mothers of sons are selfish. Well, I kind of went the other way, and, and as I mentioned before, um, I don't know what I got to deserve this. Uh, those words uh-huh. have never uttered came out of my lips. So I yeah. guess that's the flip side side of it. Just yeah. as when I had some teachers that were not very nice, I knew that I would not be that kind of teacher. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that would be the positive very, very side. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's really good. I think when we are in the situation, it's very difficult to see, obviously. And I really like the middle of the road. I remember growing up in Malaysia, it's a little bit different because you have to be on the top side all the time and you got to be an overachiever. But the bad side of it in terms of what your mom said is so true. You know why? The person that always strives so hard or just zoom in on that sort of a very narrow arrow kind of view, there is a greater propensity for them to have problems socially as well as some of them. There's a higher rate of suicide among super intelligent people. Mm -hmm. Well, my mother would be happy that that's not me. (laughs) That's right. That's right. I mean, in some ways, it's like live and apply the knowledge that you learn. So middle of the road, you kind of worked out very well and you turn out beautifully, (laughs) uh, beautifully well. Well, I know she'd be proud of me. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> I know despite everything, whatever she said, that's not always what she meant and that she'd be right, very proud of right. me and my accomplishments. Yeah. I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. so it's a little bit different. You're listening to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. Our podcasts are available on Apple's iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Blueberry Podcasting, and TuneIn Radio. My guest is Dr. Barbara Jaffe. She is the author of When Will I Be Good Enough? A Replacement Child's Journey to Healing. Barbara and I are having a wonderful conversation about her life's journey through her unique perspective as a replacement child. I'm your host, Johnny Tan. When did the soul searching end and life begins for you? Um, well, the soul, um, I'd say that, well, uh, as Plato said, an unexamined life is not worth living. Having said <laughs> that, I think the questions, the tentativeness, the insecurities, they, those are very much fainter in terms of mm-hmm. a voice. My own voice has strengthened. So I don't think the soul-searching will ever end, but mm-hmm. um, I'd like to say I've been living the whole time. Um, but it's almost as if the braces that I was living with have been taken off. So the mm-hmm. limitations, many of which I put on myself, have been taken off. But... In terms of soul-searching, Carl Jung had a a great quote. He said, (laughs) we meet ourselves 
time and again in a thousand disguises on the path of life. And I love that. So I think that's all part of the soul searching. And so Mm -hmm. it hasn't ended. I, I don't think it will. Very interesting. And it's true because it is the process of continued refinement. Yes. How do you define unconditional motherly love? Well, I think it's loving your child without strings attached. Loving whether the child's doing something wrong, maybe the child's belligerent or difficult. To know that the love that you have for this child is permanent and not to use it in a kind of bargaining chip for a child's desires. Mm -hmm. And I think the child needs to know that the parent loves them without limitations without saying, you know, if you do this, then I will do that, or, or um, not to cut off the child despite the child perhaps being, you know, in a bad mood or difficult or mm-hmm. yelling at the parents. So that's all the unconditional love. Yeah, yeah, so true. This might be generational issues and, of course, individuals' personality and so forth. How important is sort of... Uh, negative motivation like we talked about just now a little bit a hint of some people motivate in a different way some people motivate using the negative versus the positive what are your take um i i don't feel it's valuable to do anything negative um mm-hmm. i i had this great reading about spirit crushers and mm-hmm. spirit crushers are people who limit us or say things. Sometimes they'll say, I'm telling you for your own good. And right. sometimes they're teachers and counselors, ironically. Sometimes a teacher will say, well, you're not college material. I'm telling you that for your own good. And that is really limiting. So I don't believe in negative comments like mm-hmm. that. I believe that it should be positive and um so sometimes the people that say that are unhappy in their own lives and the limitations they're putting on others are really how they feel about themselves. So I think all comments really need to be more on the positive side. Um, but, you know, sometimes these negative comments motivate a certain gr- group of people, not me. They deflate <laughs> me. Uh, right, I once had a right. Spanish teacher, when I raised my hand, he said, are you going to uh-huh. ask another stupid question? And, <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> and some students would respond with belligerence and say, I can ask whatever I want, whereas right. I just completely melted into the seat and stopped asking questions and subsequently did, well, did very poor in that class as a result. Right. So those comments are very dangerous, I think. It is true. I agree with what you say. And that brings me to a question about Chapter 7, Reflections on My Inward Journey. So it comes back to us, to you as an individual. How do you reflect on those things? How do you view yourself and rebound from those kind of approach, so to speak? I think to be very kind and loving to myself, um, to accept um, what is, Um, and to create the life that I want without expecting others to give it to me or to know what I'm thinking. Uh, Expectations really are planned disappointments. And I don't have as many expectations, or I try not to have pretty much any of other people. For myself, yes. But um, I I can't really uh, believe that other people will know what I'm thinking. So either I need to tell them what I want or just give it to myself, you know. And so... Um, 
accepting and, and feeling gratitude for things have really allowed me to have peace in my life and and to focus on myself in a really healthy way. I used to think that was selfish, but now I know it's just self-care. And right. I I really try not to focus on any kind of slights or injustices, but really focus on the positives. And um, I write a grateful list every day, sometimes mm-hmm. twice a day. And that really mm-hmm. does help to focus me and allow me to see the, the positives and um, just accepting life on life's terms. Very interesting. How does forgiveness comes into play whenever you go through that process? I think forgiveness is absolutely essential. Um, I know that some people don't believe that you know you can forgive some people. Well, we're talking about, let's say, interactions between people. And if we don't forgive, who is that hurting? It's really hurting us. Right. We're harboring feelings that the other person may not even realize, and it's eating ourselves up. So I think once we can let go of that, it's really about ourselves and to heal and move on. Um, sometimes I ask myself, do I want to be right or do I want to be serene? You know, so if I know that someone is wrong, and do I need to make it my life's mission to communicate what I'm thinking or do I just kind of like let it go? And it's, it's oftentimes I let it go. But I, I do think, too, that forgiveness is a process. That You know, it's one mm-hmm. thing to say, I'm sorry, and say, okay, I forgive you. But sometimes it takes quite a while to allow that. I don't believe in holding grudges. I think we need to just let go and, and move on. I guess you look through the lens of love more than you look through the lens of fear now in your life. Absolutely. I think fear, it, love and fear are the opposites. That's true. It's not love and hate, but love and fear. And I mm-hmm. really... When I'm in fear, I, I have anxiety, and that's really not being able to trust the next indicated steps in the process. So I let that go, and I really try focusing on the beauty and staying in the minute, staying in the day. We talked a little bit about this. You mentioned that there was the greatest challenge while you go through the process of motherhood. How is that relatively compared to now you are a grandmother? And so has the thoughts shifted? for your life, living in the pursuit of happiness? Yes, I'm first and foremost my best friend. I give myself a break. I sometimes say, well, if I had known now what I, if I knew then (laughs) what I know now, hindsight is 20-20, right? I could have been the best of everything, but really I perhaps was, and I just didn't realize it. I put huge um, limitations on myself. Um, I am more free as a grandmother only because I don't have those limitations. It's like I did my own longitudinal study in life and know that, you know what, it all comes out okay. Just give ourselves a break. Love the people that you're with. Mm-hmm. Accept them mm-hmm. for who they are and live. And, and that's really what I think being um, a grandmother allows you to do. Looking back, how would things have changed if you had the opportunity to change the way everything Evolve. Would you change anything? I wouldn't. I think that these were my life's lessons that I needed to mm-hmm. learn, and I wouldn't be where I am today without having those great experiences or not-so-great experiences. I think the only thing I would lovingly say to myself is I could have been more gentle with myself. I could have been kinder mm-hmm. to myself. But um, I'm very 
happy that I had the life I've had so far. It's been an amazing journey. I look forward to more. And it's really about the life lessons along the way. And yeah. I try to learn them so I don't have to learn them again in another life. So true. Did you find writing the memoir extremely therapeutic for you? Very therapeutic. And um, as I mentioned, challenging. When I read, reread pieces of my own writing, it brought me back to the actual emotions. And yeah. this took a lot out of me. Um, and I was actually surprised by my reaction. Um, but powerful writing, good writing makes you feel, and my own <laughs> writing made me feel, and this was a pleasant surprise for me, but it, it was very therapeutic, but it was also difficult at times. You mentioned something about rewriting your life scripts. Please tell us a little bit more about that. Um, some of the scripts that we tell ourselves, just like my mother's mantras, um, rewriting our life scripts is that the things that we've done perhaps in our lives that may not serve us anymore. For me, it was um, letting go of being perfect um, and that um, I had to do everything to be worthy. I had to make the best meals. I had to do the, the most for any friend. And I could have gotten by with a lot less. I'm not talking quantity, just you know, I'm quality, just quantity. And so those are the things that I've kind of recalibrated in my own life. It's a, a script that maybe I don't need to be perfect anymore. So I've rewritten that, that good enough is just fine. And I am good enough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Where can someone go to get more information about you, buy your book, and keep up with your latest happenings? Yes, um, on my website, it's barbaraannjaffe.com. I will spell it B-A-R-B-A-R-A-A-N-N-J-A-F-F-E.com. That's information there um, about my past interviews, about my book, where to purchase my book. I also write for Psychology Today and InnerSelf.com. I'm a regular contributor. Um, there are pictures of myself and my family and to learn more about what a replacement child is and just about many issues that we all deal with. It's all on my website. Wonderful. What advice do you have for people who are replacement child? I think first and foremost is just acceptance of your unique situation and to know that I think many parents do the best they can do with the tools they have. But you can still, they can still lead joyful lives, productive lives in spite of these challenges and um, that they might have as a result of being a replacement child. So I think that's really the key. We can all live glorious lives mm -hmm. despite any of these challenges. What sort of reaction did you get from your family regarding the book? Um, interesting. Well, my mother has passed away. So mm -hmm. um, my brother asked me, would you have written the book if mom were alive? Well, I had mm -hmm. written it, parts of it, yeah. but I wouldn't have published it. My, um, my, my family has been very supportive and very fascinated because a lot of the information they did not know. My brother has a different memory in a lot of ways, and because he was the first and because of um, being you know, uh, opposite gender, he had different yeah. experiences. So, but it was it was well received within the family, and mm -hmm. friends, and people who I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. By the way, we're coming close to the end of the hour. Since our show is about people, family, and living life, would you like to share a recipe for living with our listeners this morning? Yes, I would say keep the focus on yourself and your needs. 
Um, providing self-care. I think ways to nurture our soul really allows us to be so happy and fulfilled in our lives, whether it's listening to music, taking a walk, reading peacefully, having a cup of coffee. I think that when we're nurtured, then it's so much easier for us to give willingly and openly. So I would say to be kind to ourselves and to be the friend to others, be the friend to yourself the way you are to Mm -hmm. others. That's Mm -hmm. my recipe for living. That's wonderful. Wonderful. What's next for you? Uh, What's next for me is to continue my journey, to continue to be introspective, to write, to spend time with the people and family and friends that give me joy and bliss, to travel, to read, and to write at the same time, and to continue on doing what I'm doing and being good to myself. Beautiful. That's beautiful. Barbara, thank you for the wonderful recipe for living and for spending this hour with me on From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. To all our listeners, please join me in two days, Thursday morning, November 2nd. My guest will be Renee Stillman. She is the president of the Stillman Family Foundation. Their mission is to help families with children diagnosed with permanent disability participate in communities, recreational activities as a united family in Washington, Oregon, and Utah. The foundation also supports events that benefit cerebral palsy education and activities. Renee and I will be discussing her passion about helping families with children under the age of 18 acquire wheelchair accessibility vehicles and her personal story of raising a son who is wheelchair-bounded by cerebral palsy. For additional information about this show and future shows, please go to fmmktalkradio.com. Thank you for listening and have a blessed week. Barbara, it has been a true pleasure. Thank you again and have a blessed day. Thank you so much, Johnny. I enjoyed our time together. Thank you. Bye-bye. Listening to Love Advice with Leanne. Caller, you're on the air. Uh, hi, Leanne. Longtime listener, first time caller. <laughs> Why, in your professional opinion, do you never take my calls off the air? Is this Carl? Yep, it's Carl. I mean, we had a few dates, everything was great, I thought. Uh... Well, you know, when you switch to Geico, you could save a lot of money on car insurance. Okay, awesome. You should call them. I will. Geico, because saving 15% or more on car insurance is always a great answer.